From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, July 23rd. I'm Aaron Schachter. Today, a string of attacks in Iraq prompts fears of a resurgent al-Qaeda. Across the border in Syria, are government officials bluffing about having chemical weapons? A former weapons inspector says no. The judgment is that they have nerve agent, probably VX, loaded on artillery rockets, aerial bombs, and probably ballistic missiles like Scud missiles that they purchased from the former Soviet Union and Russia. Also, what British businesses fear most this summer? A visit from the Olympic brand police. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss Market Warriors Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. When U.S. forces withdrew from Iraq, there were predictions that the country would slide back into civil war. Those predictions didn't pan out, though today they looked as if they might. A series of coordinated assaults hit at least 15 cities and killed at least 107 people. Correspondent Jane Araf is in the northern Iraqi city of Erbil. She says today seems like a turning point in Iraq. The sheer scope of it was staggering. There were dozens of attacks, and the deadliest death toll, the highest death toll, believed to be since the American forces left. This was really a wake-up call for a lot of people. Has anyone claimed responsibility yet? Not yet. It generally takes a couple of days, but it's certainly in line with statements by the Islamic State of Iraq, which is an al-Qaeda umbrella group. They put out a statement just on Saturday saying that they were launching a new offensive. And they essentially said that this was marking the start of a new campaign. What are they hoping to accomplish by these attacks? Is there a a stated goal or goals? There are a couple of goals. They want to drive Iraq back into sectarian war, civil war. They're pretty open about that. The other goal is, as the name implies, they want to declare, actually want to run an Islamic state in Iraq. They believe that Baghdad will be one of the capitals. The scope of the attacks today, as you mentioned, was quite staggering. I wonder what this suggests about Iraq's ability, the current government's ability to uh, protect itself and its people. You can't really have the organization, the skills or the manpower to set off this number of bombs without having some support. And that's really what a lot of people are worried about, that after everything it took to drive back al-Qaeda, when the Sunni tribes aligned with American forces and fought against al-Qaeda, that it could be slipping backwards again, and they could be re-emerging in some of these areas. Now, as we're speaking to you, you are in the Kurdish part of Iraq, and that has historically been relatively stable. Is that still true today? It's extremely stable, but the lines here are very finely drawn. It's not too far from Kirkuk. And Kirkuk, of course, is where a lot of those attacks took place today. There were bombings aimed at police patrols in Kirkuk, which is less than about an hour from here. 
Kirkuk, of course, is that city in the oil fields that's claimed by both the Kurds and the central government. So the backdrop to some of this violence is the political turmoil that's going on here between the Kurds and the Arabs and between the Shias and the Sunnis and all different kinds of layering of conflict going on. Now, Jane, today the Iraqi government reversed itself and agreed to let Syrian refugees into the country, which I have to imagine is a welcome relief for the Syrians. They'd already let Iraqis who had fled Iraq into Syria come back. I wonder if there's a concern that the border might be open to fighters going back and forth. Well, that was the original concern that led the Iraqi government to say it wouldn't let in Syrian refugees. Now, it was kind of an untenable position because Syria was the country that more than a million Iraqis took refuge in after 2003 and during the sectarian war. And you're absolutely right. The worry really is that it's not just families coming across, that because of those porous borders, it could be fighters coming back again and restarting the violence that Iraq has just emerged from. Is there any concern, do you think, on Syria's part that fighters are now going the other way, that Iraqis and perhaps even Kurdish fighters are going into Syria to fight the regime there? Absolutely. The Syrian government has actually accused Iraq of allowing fighters to go back into Syria. And Iraq is now worried that as al-Qaeda moves and moves across that border, if the borders fall, they could come back again. What it's worried about more than anything is a Syria that is breaking up, the borders being a free-for-all, and violence starting again around the edges and creeping back into Iraq from Syria. Correspondent Jane Araf reports from Iraq for the Christian Science Monitor and Al Jazeera International. She joined us from northern Iraq in the city of Erbil uh, in the Kurdish part of Iraq. Jane, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And we turn now to that situation in Syria. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said today he was very concerned that the Syrian army will be tempted to use its chemical weapons. Those concerns come despite repeated declarations from the Syrian government that it would use chemical weapons only if attacked by foreign forces. Here's Syrian Foreign Ministry spokesman Jihad Makdisi. Any stocks of any unconventional weapon, any chemical weapon, if they, it exists, it won't be used never ever against civilian, against the Syrian people. But will the Assad regime stick to its word? Charles Delfer is a former U.S. intelligence officer and weapons inspector. Uh, Mr. Delfer, do we actually know what kinds of chemical weapons Syria has? Well, I think unlike the case in Iraq, where the information turned out to be completely wrong, with respect to Syria, there's a broad consensus that, in fact, they do have chemical munitions and potentially biological munitions. This was uh, developed in, in response to the Israeli nuclear program. So these assessments about Syrian capabilities have existed literally, I think, for decades. And do we know what kinds of, of weapons they have and how dangerous they are? Well, the judgment is that they have nerve agent, probably VX, loaded on artillery rockets, aerial bombs, and probably ballistic missiles like Scud missiles that they purchased from the former Soviet Union and Russia. You'll also recall that there was a nuclear program which the Israeli bombed in September of 2007. So the word of the foreign minister can probably be taken in this case to be fairly accurate, that they are designed and aimed and intended for foreign targets rather than internal use. But foreign forces is an awfully squishy term, don't you think? 
It's very squishy, particularly because the situation is so dynamic and there are so many different interests involved. Bear in mind that the Iranians are playing very heavily in the Syrian uh, uprising. The Iranians obviously have a mutual enemy in the sense that both Syria and Iran are worried about Israel. So the situation gets very complicated. It's not just two actors. It's not just you know, Syria and Israel or Syria and uh, the Western world. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts. I've read a, a few briefs on this today, and it's just incredibly frightening for all the reasons you've mentioned, either that the Syrian government uses these things or that they fall into the hands of al-Qaeda or rebels or anyone else. Is it right to be frightened? It is correct to be worried about the WMD. You know, a couple of things could be done. One is uh, countries worried about that could be reaching out to military leaders in Syria, trying to you know, make deals quietly with them to identify where the locations are, to assure them that their future can be affected quite positively if they act responsibly. Uh, but there's going to be competition for the, for the attentions and the loyalties of these people. The Iranians are going to be there trying to make a lot of mischief. A another factor which I think the international community could could play upon, and, and perhaps if there's a revision to the Kofi Annan approach, maybe the UN should propose as part of their solution set with the Assad regime to have weapons inspectors go in there and secure the sites, that that would be a, a demonstration on the part of the Syrian regime that they were serious about this and that the UN would not serve as a, an excuse for an invasion of Syria, but that their concern was strictly to secure uh, the WMD sites. I think some proposal along those lines could be very useful. Charles Delfer, former head of the Iraq Survey Group. He's also a former special advisor to the director of the CIA. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. The Summer Olympics begin later this week in London, and they have a new unofficial unlicensed name, the Censorship Olympics. It's a reference to laws that reserve the use of certain Olympic language and imagery for official sponsors. Those sponsors, Visa, McDonald's, and others, paid a lot of money for the exclusive privilege. The International Olympic Committee requires such laws of every host nation. But the laws in Britain are the most stringent yet. The world's Alex Galifant reports on how British companies and retailers are trying to get around them. I'm in Reading, a town 30 minutes west of London by train. And the biggest thing I've seen here mentioning the Olympic Games is a poster for Coca-Cola. It's embellished with the five Olympic rings. And legally, there's no problem with that. Coke is a global sponsor of the Games. Coast to Coast, a discount homewares store, is not. They're not letting any smaller businesses benefit from it. It's just, just for the big businesses, really. Abhishek Bra works at Coast to Coast. He points out that lots and lots of taxpayer money has been spent on the Olympics. According to a parliamentary committee, the figure will be around $17 billion, all told. Not enough, though, to allow small businesses to associate themselves with the Games. During the Olympics, we're not allowed to put any kind of Olympics, anything associated with the Olympics at all. Otherwise, we've been hearing on the news, they've been giving um, people fines. In fact, a so-called brand army of inspectors is roaming the UK, scouring for businesses that are breaking the rules. Nick Cohen is the author of a study of censorship called You Can't Read This Book. A florist who did a flower display of Olympic rings, they had to be taken down. Um, a butcher who did sausages in the shape of Olympic rings, that had to go. 
People who wanted Olympic nicks, they had to be cancelled. The inspectors are also hunting for language that infringes the rules, for combinations of certain words, including games, 2012, gold, silver, and bronze, and London. The rules are so strict that, bar the Coke poster and some McDonald's packaging, you'd never know the Olympic Games were about to start. What you can't fail to notice, however, is that you're in Britain. Only a few weeks ago, Queen Elizabeth celebrated her Diamond Jubilee. British flags went up in towns across the country. Now those flags are doing double duty for the Olympic Games too, says coffee shop worker Alana Richards. She says it's all part of one big crazy celebration. We're quite the Great British Summer because of the Olympics, the Jubilee. There are lots of stuff on.、We're、the tourism, they're trying to get people staying in rather than go elsewhere for once. Some British businesses have got around the Olympic rules with clever campaigns. This version of the Beatles classic is for the department store Marks and Spencer. It has a promotion called "On Your Marks for a Summer to Remember." But for most brands, using the British flag is a kind of code. It's an easy way to signal an association with the Olympics while avoiding all the legal traps. In a supermarket, Sainsbury's, I spotted the flag on packaging for deodorant. Cookies, broccoli, and more—they're just everywhere. Everywhere, says Liz Taylor, who works in the store. Tea bags, soap powders, bread, potatoes, bottle openers—it's on quite a lot of the stuff which we actually sell in store. Even beer, even toilet paper. The British flag is everywhere. I did find one business willing to take a gamble, though. That was a chain of slot machine parlors. Starting today, they're running a scratch card promotion called "How many will you win?" The logo is a shiny gold medal. The contest runs until August twelfth, the last day of the Olympic Games. Coincidentally, of course. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. And you can see some of the products that have dressed themselves up in the Union Jack at theworld.org. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at HeartRescueNow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is the world. Beijingers today began drying out after the weekend's deluge. The rain and floods in the Chinese capital are said to be the worst in more than 60 years. One government official is quoted as saying, "As much rain fell in one day in Beijing as normally falls in six months. It left at least 37 people dead and displaced tens of thousands." The world's China correspondent Mary Kay Magstad was home in Beijing over the weekend. It was just pelting rain for hour after hour. I actually had a reporting trip that I had to make to the outskirts of the city. Traffic was crawling; we could hardly see as we were driving. We saw cars that were stranded by the side of the road in water, basically almost up to the door.、Um, when I got back to my home in Beijing, I was walking on the streets with water up to my ankles and sometimes higher. Even on Sunday. Night. We went out the southwest end of town, which got by far the most rain. It got 18 inches of rain on Saturday, and traffic then was crawling, and there was still some water on the roads. So it was really a mess. And almost immediately, Chinese Twitter, which is called Weibo in China, was full of comments about how could this possibly happen in our capital city? Why can't we get something as simple as this right? 
And the complaints were based on what? I mean, it, it was an immense amount of rain in a very short period of time. It was an immense amount of rain in a very short period of time, but here are some of the problems. Um, the drainage networks in Beijing are not built to be able to absorb heavy rainfalls. The networks that are there have a lot of sediment blocking the pipes. So, you know, Beijing is a city that has doubled in population in the course of 10, 15 years. There are all kinds of new buildings, and it appears that one area that's been neglected a little bit is thinking about, as we do all of this, are we doing enough to compensate to allow water to be absorbed when there is a heavy rainstorm? It is sort of shocking because we hear so much about uh, Chinese investment in infrastructure. This is probably a silly question, but did they forget to uh, retrofit the sewer system? I think the calculation was that there just wouldn't be rains that were quite this heavy. But I've got to say, I've lived in Beijing for more than a decade, and I've experienced a number of times where the roads are flooded up to your knees or up to your shins. So this is a chronic problem in Beijing. But um, the central government, interestingly, did have a, a meeting just in May to discuss the problem of urban flooding, including in Beijing. And new regulations were set to be put into place next year. I would guess at this point that they might be speeding up the process and trying to do something sooner than that. Now, we're talking about what happened in Beijing, but uh, the rains affected lots of people elsewhere as well. One of the complaints was that weather authorities didn't notify people soon enough that this was coming. Well, I certainly knew that there was a forecast for thunderstorms. I think it's sometimes hard to know how heavy rain is going to be on any given day with any given storm. I mean, there have been times in years past where the government was praying for rain. It even seeded the clouds to try to get rain because Beijing is situated in the northern plain of China, which is chronically dry where the water table is dropping and rain would be forecast and the clouds would just move over Beijing and you wouldn't get rain at all. So this time far more rain fell than anyone expected. So it's not like a hurricane coming and hitting the coast. You can't say, we know with dead certainty that this is going to hit, and it's at this level of intensity. They knew that there was going to be a storm. They had no idea it was going to be like this. The world's Mary Kay Magstad. Thank you so much. Stay dry. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. The White House today called Cuban dissident Oswaldo Payá a tireless champion in the nonviolent struggle for freedom and democratic reform. Payá was killed in a car crash yesterday, about 500 miles east of Havana, a crash that relatives and supporters view as suspicious. Payá spent decades speaking out against the Castro regime. He's best known for founding the Varela Project, which in 2002 delivered a petition calling for democratic change on the island. The world's Clark Boyd has more on his life and work. From an early age, Oswaldo Payá voiced his displeasure with Castro's communist government. In his late teens, he was sent to a work camp as punishment for speaking out. Payá wanted to major in physics at the University of Havana, but the authorities forced him to leave due to his anti-Marxist beliefs. He eventually found work repairing electronic medical equipment. In 1997, though, Payá became an activist. A year later, he began the Varela Project. Paya and a group of dissidents began collecting signatures for a petition calling for democratic change. He took the rules of the Cuban government and he really used them to challenge the system from within. 
Nick Steinberg is Cuba researcher for Human Rights Watch. He looked at a provision of the Constitution in Cuba that allows for citizens to call for change of policy on the island if they can collect 10,000 signatures. And what Paya and his fellow organizers did was they went out and got people to sign this petition. And really, there was nothing like this that had ever happened before in Cuba. Paya presented the petition to the government in 2002. The Cuban government reacted by throwing out the signatures and declaring that Cuba would always be communist. Later that year, Paya was allowed to travel out of the country to receive the European Parliament's Sakharov Prize for freedom of thought. Ustedes han concedido el premio Andrei Sakharov al pueblo de Cuba. You have granted this prize to the Cuban people, Paya said at the ceremony. Because thousands of Cubans have signed the petition, they're making a decisive contribution to the changes that Cuba needs. But in the months that followed, more than 70 of Paya's fellow dissidents were rounded up and jailed. Paya himself wasn't imprisoned, but he was the subject of continued harassment. The Varela Project couldn't continue. But, says Nick Steinberg, that doesn't mean it didn't make a difference. After the Varela Project and the repression that followed, there was no way that the Cuban government could claim that there was no grassroots support in Cuba for greater change. Uh, it eliminated that that argument of the government that nobody in Cuba uh, had issues with the government's lack of political and civil freedoms. In later years, Steinberg says, Paya continued to work by documenting the Cuban government's abuses of activists. He was never bombastic, never loud, says Steinberg. Instead, he was always level-headed and pragmatic. As one of Paya's neighbors told the Associated Press today, he was a very humane person, very easygoing. He has done many good things. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead on The World, Oprah's new take on India doesn't go down well with some Indians. She did make the statement that also I hear a lot of people still eat with their hands. And it's, you know, it's tantamount to going to China and saying, oh my God, I hear a lot of people eat with little sticks. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. When the London Olympics get underway on Friday, Mitt Romney plans to be there. The Republican presidential hopeful is scheduled to attend the opening ceremonies. It's the first stop in a three-country tour designed to beef up his foreign policy credentials. The world's Jason Margolis has more. Four years ago, Republican presidential nominee John McCain was criticizing his Democratic opponent for lacking foreign policy experience. So Senator Obama took a trip. He visited Afghanistan, Iraq, Jordan, and Israel. He also went to Paris, London, and Berlin. There, an estimated 200,000 people turned up to hear him speak. I come to Berlin as so many of my countrymen have come before. Although tonight I speak to you not as a candidate for president, but as a citizen. 
a proud citizen of the United States and a fellow citizen of the world. That speech and trip showed candidate Obama looking presidential on a world stage. Mitt Romney could also benefit from an overseas trip like that, says Daniel Dresner with the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Romney, as the challenger, needs to at least meet some sort of credible bar of foreign policy gravitas. And the problem with Romney is that he doesn't have any official foreign policy experience. He has a few things that he can point to to highlight the fact that he has at least thought about world affairs. But it's sort of a nice way that he can get a visual of meeting with officials or what have you, and and the, the visuals look good. And you can be certain Romney's campaign staff have carefully selected the locations for those visuals. The timing of this trip is built around the Olympics. That's Elliot Abrams with the Council on Foreign Relations. He served in the Reagan and George W. Bush administrations. It's a reminder to people that he once ran the Olympics. He saved the Salt Lake City Olympics, as he likes to put it, and I think is, is fair. After London, Romney heads to Israel. That stop also makes sense to Daniel Dresner at Tufts. Because it's an open secret that Barack Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu do not get along. The Obama administration's initiatives with respect to peace between Palestine and Israel have failed badly. This is going to be an area where Romney can honestly criticize the Obama administration. Romney has faulted the president for pressing Israel to make concessions to the Palestinians. Romney's campaign website says the president has, quote, diminished U.S. authority and painted Israel and ourselves into a corner. Romney has said that if elected, Israel would be his first foreign trip as president. Obama hasn't yet made a presidential visit to Israel, and he's gotten a lot of flack for it. Never mind that Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush also didn't visit Israel when they were president, and George W. Bush didn't visit until the eighth year of his presidency. But Mitt Romney has a personal friendship with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that dates back to the 1970s when both men worked for a U.S. consulting group. And when Romney repeats his line that he'll be a better friend to Israel than Barack Obama, he'll soon have the visuals to support that statement. It matters in sort of symbolic terms. That's political scientist Terry Bimes at UC Berkeley. Beyond the image, though, how might American policies toward Israel differ under a President Romney? Not much. So it's not like Obama has not been supportive of Israel. For example, American foreign aid to Israel has increased considerably under President Obama. The next stop for Mitt Romney's overseas tour will be another close friend for the U.S. He's going on to Poland. Again, Daniel Dresner. Where he can highlight what he feels has been the Obama administration's betrayal of Eastern European allies by pursuing a quote-unquote reset with Russia. Poles were also stung when the Obama administration scrapped a Bush administration plan to build missile defenses in Poland. Romney was also scheduled to visit Germany on his trip, but his campaign recently canceled that stop. Again, this is where Barack Obama whipped Europeans into a frenzy four years ago. I asked Elliot Abrams if Romney risked looking foolish or unpopular if he didn't get a similar reception. I'm not so sure because... The popularity of President Obama all over Europe is significantly lower than it was four years ago. And it does enable the Romney campaign to make that argument that, no, he's not a rock star. He's a serious and solid guy. 
That issue also came up four years ago. Shortly after Obama's Berlin speech, the McCain campaign ran this advertisement comparing Barack Obama with Britney Spears and Paris Hilton. He's the biggest celebrity in the world. But is he ready to lead? But this upcoming trip isn't about Barack Obama. It's about the Romney campaign trying to get that perfect visual of their candidate looking perfectly presidential on a world stage. And if the trip isn't a roaring success, it probably won't matter all that much, says Terry Bimes at UC Berkeley. If you look at the 2008 election, Obama was not hurt by his lack of foreign policy experience. And I don't think Romney will be hurt by it either in 2012. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. You can find more of our coverage of the 2012 U.S. elections. It's all at theworld.org. Another issue in the election campaign has been Romney's tax status. The Democrats have accused him of hiding his income in foreign accounts. Tax avoidance isn't illegal, but a new report says it's very costly. The report says the world's wealthiest individuals are sheltering at least $21 trillion in offshore tax havens. That's about the gross domestic product of the United States and Japan combined. The report is by the group Tax Justice Network. Report author James Henry told the BBC that their estimates are probably on the low side. We've left aside, for example, all of the real estate and art and yachts that are held through offshore havens. Uh, that's not of these numbers. That would be an addition. So the $21 trillion is, we think, a, a conservative estimate. The British government said today it would toughen oversight of tax avoidance schemes. Last month, British comedian Jimmy Carr admitted making a terrible error of judgment after it emerged that he'd been using a legal scheme to cut his tax bill. Carr sheltered nearly $5 million through an offshore account. Here he is getting grilled about it on his own comedy show. Sean, Sarah, Georgie, anything you've been... Chat, anything caught your eye uh, <laughs> in the papers well, Jimmy. this week? <laughs> we, all, we all like to put a bit of money away for a rainy day. <laughs> don't we? But uh, I think you're more prepared than Noah. Ouch. Well, London-based business journalist Tim Jenkins is following the story. Tim, tax avoidance is not the same as tax evasion, correct? It isn't. And Jimmy Carr's, it was lovely watching him squirm, by the way, on that comedy show. He was really contrived. Basically, his accountants got a little bit over-keen. He wasn't aware of the detail, is his excuse, as to what was going on. Because what those accountants were telling him was, do you want to pay a little bit less tax? And let's face it, who wants to pay more tax than they should? And in specifically, what about individuals and companies that are maybe doing something good with the money that they make? Maybe they're investing in a factory to produce more jobs for your local economy. And in those circumstances, governments around the world allow those individuals and companies to pay less tax. So you want to pay the right level of tax. That is avoidance. That's legal. That's getting your tax bill right. But then, of course, it can get quite imaginative and then it can get into the illegal, the plainly illegal, and that's called evasion. Just remember the mighty Swiss bank UBS going to U.S. citizens and saying, hey, listen, why don't you hide your cash in Switzerland? Because you won't have to declare it to your tax authorities at all. And that is quite clearly illegal, Aaron. Now, I, I have to imagine some of the very British authorities who are cracking down 
are themselves employing creative uh, accountants for the very purpose that you just mentioned, the avoidance, not the evasion. I think some people wonder whether there's a balance of brains on this one because the clever people, the really clever people are on the accountancy side of this game. And maybe the less well-paid, the less well-motivated are on the, on the side of the public. It has to be said this is a game that both sides know they play. And, for example, the tax authorities of the United Kingdom have quite willingly struck deals with large companies and said, OK, listen, you pay this much tax. It's probably less than you would normally pay if you paid your full desserts, but uh, if you pay this level, at least we can be sure that we're getting a substantial chunk of money out of you. What is the justification then for uh, the British government's new measures? I mean, they, they include naming and shaming, correct? Yeah, that's true. Don't forget that all of this is driven by a need to raise tax revenue in very austere times. That's why we've seen the United States, too, applying diplomatic pressure to the likes of the Cayman Islands, especially Switzerland. Just the other day, Vatican City, of all places, was told, listen, be more transparent with your banking systems, where you're sorting away your money. Do do you think British officials really expect to recover all that much at all? I mean, it sounds like a you know, a nice uh, political maneuver here. On the back of public disdain and disgust from the start of the uh, global financial crisis, governments have been able to use that pressure to get companies to be more honest. That's happened. I suspect there's a double, there's another prong to this attack, which is to get people to think about their behaviour, to behave responsibly and to act before they're actually uh, investigated or ratted out by some of their insiders. London-based business reporter Tim Jenkins. Bradley Wiggins is enjoying a day off today, but the British winner of the Tour de France isn't taking much time out of the saddle. This Saturday, he'll be competing in the Olympic road race, cheered on by thousands. As popular as cycling has become in Britain, some older cyclists are remembering the last time London played host to the Olympics. That was in 1948, and Britain was struggling to recover from the Second World War. Only one of the venues from those games still hosts competition today, though not Olympic ones. Laura Lynch reports from London on a velodrome and the powerful memories it evokes for one British Olympian. And they're off. The Olympic dreams of a new generation start right here. In the southern reaches of London, they race their sleek bicycles around the Hearn Hill Velodrome. It's basic. No roof, so the recent rains have turned the infield into a muddy bog. And the grandstand is a bit rickety. But it still has a storied pride of place in Britain's Olympic history. The chosen athletes of 58 nations press through the welcoming crowds to the scene of the 14th Olympiad. Emerging from the dark shadow of the Second World War, the 1948 Olympics were Britain's chance to prove to the world it had triumphed over adversity. The British team. Still, the home team marching into the stadium faced a number of challenges. So too did the game's organisers, particularly when it came to preparing the cycling track. There was grass growing through the track centre and it was in a dilapidated state. Really very, very bad. Wally Happy, a former competitive cyclist himself, knows the history of cycling and this old velodrome well. It opened in 1891. But the war and the Army's decision to station anti-aircraft guns on the site left their mark. 
Happy says there was only one way to ensure it would be ready for the Games. We raised money amongst the cyclists to rebuild it. We mortgaged our headquarters up in central London. There wasn't much money, not much food either, due to post-war rationing. So Happy says Commonwealth countries stepped in to help out. The Olympic team were receiving food parcels from the, the big Dominion, uh, Dominion countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And if it hadn't been for that, nourishment for those riders would have, would, would have been nil. Among those riders was one who's now a legend at the Hearn Hill Velodrome. Tommy Godwin, now 91, has returned to the track where he became an Olympian all those decades ago. Godwin developed a passion for cycling after working as a delivery boy. During the war, he worked in a munitions factory. So 1948 was Godwin's first and possibly only chance at Olympic glory. And his father, a former athlete himself, wasn't about to let his son fail, even if there wasn't enough food for a cyclist in training. He used to give me a glass of sherry and put a fresh egg in and drink that, and then he'd say I'd have to have a, a glass of Guinness to put, uh, get the iron content. I mean, my father knew a lot of practical things. Godwin knew he'd become a real metal threat the day the Americans came calling. He'd been born in the United States, but moved to Britain as a child. Oh, yes, indeed. They came across to me and they said, you're American by birth. I said, yes. And they said, uh, "What about? would you consider changing allegiance? I said, indeed not. I said, no, I'm very much British. And that's it. And so Godwin raced under the Union Jack. He won two bronze medals. Enough, he says, to prompt his stoic father to cry with pride. Godwin remembers those games, this track, and compares it to the high-tech, high-cost, flashy Olympics of today. Godwin cherishes all that 1948 brought to him, including the hardship. You have to have to take things they come along. Uh, and To even consider being in the Olympic Games and to know they were being put on, then obviously you put heart and soul into it, regardless of the, the, um, the failure of certain things, you know. Godwin cannot resist. He's up on the bike, recreating his victory lap and doing it in pretty good time. How are you feeling? Good. Just good. a little breeze around the track. It was easy, <laughs> huh? And for a moment, he grins like the young Olympian he used to be. For the world, I'm Laura Lynch in London. Coming up, the world's tallest man here on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Today's GeoQuiz takes us to the Indian state of Rajasthan, specifically to Rajasthan's largest city, the state capital. It's also where Asia's largest literary festival takes place. That festival was recently highlighted by Oprah Winfrey in a TV show, but not without controversy. More on that coming up. So, do you know the Indian city we're looking for? The answer is just seconds away. We said it'd be quick. 
The answer to today's GeoQuiz is Jaipur, Rajasthan's largest city and home to the Jaipur Literary Festival. Oprah Winfrey made a visit to the festival recently and shot some interviews there. They became part of a series of TV shows called Next Chapter India, and they've just started airing on TLC. But there's a problem. Some Indians have found Oprah's take on India stereotypical. We're joined by Rajashree Sen, columnist for the online newspapers First Post and News Laundry. Uh, Rajashree, you've obviously seen the program. Uh, Describe a little bit what Oprah's India looks like. So I saw the first episode. I didn't have the pleasure of seeing the second episode, but the first episode, she meets a family who stays in a very small room. It's a 10 feet by 10 feet room. Then after that, she goes and she meets an extremely well-off family and she has a meal with them. And then after that, she goes for a Bollywood uh, party thrown in her honor by one of uh, India's very, very well-off industrialists. And that's where it sort of ends. And the next episode, which was the next day, was uh, that she would go to Taj Mahal. What is the reaction in India like to uh, Oprah's program? I don't think it's so much that I felt that she was stereotyping us. It was, there seemed to be a great lack of awareness about a country where which she is visiting. And I'm assuming that Oprah, with her massive research team, must be doing some research before coming into a country. So there seemed to be a great lack of awareness. And uh, she did make the statement that, oh, so I hear a lot of people still eat with their hands. And it's, you know, it's tantamount to going to China and saying, oh, my God, I hear a lot of people eat with little sticks. I, I, I think Oprah Winfrey represents what we call middle America, right? The average American, you, you know, despite the fact that she's very wealthy, she speaks for uh, many Americans. In yeah. that sense, it was her questioning was was kind of honest, wasn't it? But I think you need to also be sensitive to who you're... Would you ask this to a child is my question. So it's also who are you asking? What do you think you can get away with? Rajashree Sen is a columnist for the online newspapers First Post and News Laundry. Finally today, Christian Matsun is the tallest man on earth. At least that's what the Swedish musician calls himself. Christian Matsun spoke to my colleague Marco Werman last week. So you got to wonder... Is he really that tall? Uh, not really. <laughs> not really, meaning yeah. uh, tallest man on earth could imply greatness. It might also mean a kind of freakish quality, you know, like a Diane Arbus photograph subject. Which are you? Uh, the, 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 the freaky one, maybe. No, I don't know. I just need a stupid name. <laughs> no, it's not that stupid. I mean, uh, were, were you thinking of where you are in uh, on the world uh, map, kind of up there in Scandinavia looking down at the rest of us? No, I don't think I was thinking at all. I was just, you know, I wasn't supposed to do anything with this music. I was just putting up online. I just needed a name. and So I just took that. <laughs> what do you mean you weren't doing anything with the music? You were just, you, you didn't think you were going to be famous someday? You yeah, just... I, was in, I, I, was in a, I was in a garage rock band and I was like climbing around on stages trying to be Iggy Pop or something. So I just did this music on the side. Yeah. All right. Since we are talking about your music, let's let's listen to it. I'd like to put on your tune, Revelation Blues. This is on your uh, just-released album, There's No Leaving Now. And then we can chat some more. I was more than just a coward I was handsome too I felt nothing when your flood came down 
never touch no ground When you're telling this a number Of the many times you've gone I could lie, I don't care about forgiving But sometimes it's just roses dying too young Christian, uh, it, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that, that your songs and your voice are very similar to, to Bob Dylan. Many listeners come to the same conclusion. And, you know, the cynical side of me says, uh, when an artist sounds so much like the real deal, I immediately wonder, are you the real deal? You know, kind of this troubadour sprung from, you know, the rural asphalt of Sweden, like Bob Dylan was in Minnesota. Or are you trying to sound like that? What is it? Well, you know... I consider myself the real deal, but I don't think there's a specific one real deal. I'm just trying to write songs, you know, mm. and I'm trying to write solid songs. And, you know, Bob Dylan was a pretty solid songwriter, you know. and Not bad, you yeah. Know, and what about, what about your music in, in, in Sweden? How's it, uh, how's it playing there? It's, it's good. The whole music industry here is a small market, mm. and we don't have a big radio culture, you know, where you could find a radio station that plays your music. It's just, you know, it's just a couple of really commercial stations but now yeah so it's not like it's on the radio all the time so how are you how, how are you making it are you doing just small gigs around sweden and europe are you coming to the states soon yeah i'm flying back again and i just i just played here in europe and before that i was in the states so i do pretty good here in sweden too with the play theaters and mm. well you seem to have reached a new high with with this album there's no leaving now Christian Matson, a.k.a. The Tallest Man on Earth. Uh, let's go out with your tune, 1904. Can you set it up for us? What happened in 1904 that triggered this song? Uh, well, it was on the border of Sweden and Norway. Any but more it's details? A, yeah, it's, no, it's a hopeful song. You know, one of my few. <laughs> well, some they say it's not even funny You may be able to catch the tallest man on earth. The Real Deal is back in the U.S. for a few gigs. We have his tour dates at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org 
the Rita Allen Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.